Um, tonight will be the last time we go through the book of Isaiah, uh, if I can help it. And so, unless we don't finish uh, this, which is there's a possibility we won't get through this tonight, and then we'll uh, punt until a couple weeks, and then we'll resume it then. Um, but you can tell by the title, this is, uh, is going to be, I say the best for last, um, an apocalyptic discussion that won't end in a fight, hopefully, and so we're going to go through it. Now, one of the, this is, the reason that I wanted to go through this, obviously, what we're trying to do on Wednesday night, or what I'm trying to do on Wednesday night, is really help us to be better Bible readers um, by the, the, the big impetus for, for me to you is to really just give us a set of background information that will help us read the Bible in its context and, and read it better. Uh, essentially be able to know what's going on on the timeline of history, the scope of what Israel's going through at the time. Helps make the prophets make a lot more sense if you know um, history. And then as we go through, also my hope is that it will encourage you along the way. That as we look at the story of, you know, it's been eons now since we've talked about Moses and leading the children of Israel across the wilderness and across the Red Sea, and we talked about that, and, and, and I think leading them both out of Egypt through, through the Red Sea, there's some encouragement there to know that history bears a lot of this out, like will tell us this is happening, you know, and so um, I think it, hopefully it gives us encouragement as we read the Bible to know that it's authoritative, that it's inerrant, it's infallible, and um, that, that we can trust it. And so all of those things are going into this, but there's some things in, particularly in the prophets, and there's some things that are just sprinkled throughout the Bible that are just difficult. They're really hard to understand. They're hard to wrap your mind around, even if you know the history and things like that. It's, it's difficult to read and interpret. And one of those things is, is Hebrew poetry. I went to a workshop a couple of weeks ago in Austin, Texas, um, where the capital of brisket, uh, and I mean, sorry, Texas, um, and uh, <laughs> no, so uh, in this workshop, we, we call it a workshop and not a conference, because we're, we actually have assignments going into the workshop, and so they send us two passages that we are to sort of break apart and kind of figure out what's happening in it, and go to the workshop, and then we uh, sit in front of other pastors, and we kind of lay out what we think the passage is talking about and all this stuff. And, and then they basically get to skewer us. Um, and so it's quite fun, actually. Uh, but, so we do this, but the passages that we had this last time were from Job, and you always work inside a, just one particular book or one particular genre of literature. And Job, as you know, is a story but it's written in, poem, in a poem. Every speech is this long poem. And poems in Hebrew are terrible. They're very hard to read. They're very hard to understand. And they're filled with all kinds of pictures that sometimes are, are, leave you going, what? What is he talking about here, right? And so you'll be comforted to know that a bunch of pastors sat around a table and we had a very difficult time working through the book of Job. So it's, what I'm saying is, it's, it's really hard sometimes to, to interpret, especially big sections of Scripture. What you'll find in the book of Isaiah is that there's frequently these spots along the way where Isaiah breaks into, if I can get to the next slide, you know what? Will you go plug this in? Sorry. 
I can't invest the next slide until... Perfect. Um, throughout the book of Isaiah, he frequently goes into these long sections where he condemns a particular nation, where God tells him, this is the word that I want you to give to X nation. You go and tell them this. And so Isaiah breaks into this long section of basically Hebrew poetry where he pronounces God's judgment on a given nation. It won't, still won't click for me. And you might have to advance it. Is it still not advancing? We're getting there. Just bear with us. There's technical difficulties, people. It's okay. It's, it's what happens when you do technology. Of all the things I want to fight about tonight, this is not <laughs> one of them. Good? There it goes. Okay. Oh, it was both of us working together against each other. All right. Okay, we're good. All right, so throughout the book of Isaiah, the prophet breaks into these apocalyptic poems as he proclaims God's judgment on a given nation. So he points out the nation, and then he, he gives this long, uh, extended thing, proclamation of judgment against a given nation. And the difficulty that is uh, presented to us is that there are images that he uses, uh, whether they be metaphors or simile or various other kinds of word pictures that he gives that make it really difficult not only to understand, but also to figure out what is he talking about. And so it's for that reason that you get to the passage of Scripture and you're like, what in the world is going on? And it's then that it creates a lot of argument amongst Christians as to what this passage is really about. Almost nobody debates for God to love the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Almost no one debates that, right? We pretty much understand that. It's, you know, wrestling with its implications that's hard. But the reality is we, we, we understand that. It's the other stuff. It's this, these images that are presented that often create this, you know, difficulty in understanding. And so... When it comes to apocalyptic literature, when it comes to poems that are presented to us in Scripture, we're going to uncover a bunch tonight, it, it becomes really difficult to parse through some of these images. Now, when we say images or imagery presented in the Bible, what, are, what, is, what is really being presented to us? And basically, it's that the author, in this case Isaiah, is representing one thing by giving us an image of another thing. Right? So... He's trying to tell us one thing, but he's, he's putting an image on top of it that communicates seemingly something else. Why? Exactly why? And every time I teach either the book of Revelation or Daniel or uh, you know, the prophets or whatever, that's the question I get most often, is why didn't they just tell us? Why didn't they just say it to us? And I think in a moment, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that it's going to click, all right? So give me just a minute, all right. So they tell us one thing, buy another thing. And so it's this imagistic language is sometimes referred to as figurative language, and it makes biblical interpretation really challenging because it, it gives us sort of a lack of certainty about what's going on. And let's be honest. If we're really honest, the last thing you want to hear a Bible teacher say when they stand up at a pulpit or a podium is say, 
This needs to be interpreted figuratively, right? Isn't that a slippery word? That's a slippery word. You say figurative when it comes to talking about the bi- biblical interpretation, and that is a word that a lot of people who are not Christians, who do not believe the Bible is authoritative, will use to describe events that are not supposed to be taken figuratively, right? One that comes to mind might be something like the resurrection of Jesus, all right? You have people literally that will stand up in the pulpit and will say about the resurrection of Jesus, well, you're supposed to read that figuratively. Or how about the creation of the world, Genesis 1 and 2, that's probably the most popular one, is, well, really, you need to read that figuratively, and what do you end up with? You end up with evolution or a host of other ways in which mankind came about. The problem is, with those kinds of genres of literature, is they don't present themselves in any way as figurative. They present themselves as historical fact. And so, every way it tells you, you need to read this historically. You need to read this as it says here. That figuration is not coming into the picture at all. And so, it, it becomes a really challenging thing, because when you say, all right, he's using figurative language here, people kind of naturally, and rightfully so, get a little bit apprehensive about that. And you probably should. Um, We don't want to use that uh, too much. But, the challenges be as they are, we miss a lot of what the Bible contains if we don't understand both the literal and the symbolic picture that's used to display the literal. So if we don't understand that there are times where there is figurative language used and we don't know how to read it, we'll never know how to interpret it. And so our conclusions about that passage will always go askew. Here's an easy one. All right, I'm going to give you an easy one and you'll be able to kind of, I think, hopefully track with me. All right. John the Baptist, I use this one a lot. John the Baptist is standing in the river, in the Jordan River. Now this is a narrative section of of, of the Bible that that tells us events that, are, that took place. I mean, um, you're almost reading it like a historical story, like somebody just telling you what happened. And then John, in the river, says, sees Jesus on the bank, and what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John gives no explanation for that. He just says it. Now, Is John being literal or figurative? Well, the answer is both, right? He's being figurative, but he's also being literal. He's being figurative in the sense that nobody expects to turn to their left and see a sheep covered in wool buying on the the banks, do they? Nobody expects that. Everybody expects to turn and see a man. But he's being literal in the sense that he is literally going to be the sacrifice that atones for the sins of many. So this is the important thing to understand about figurative language as it's used in Scripture. Is it actually has a literal meaning, right, underneath it. So when somebody says, hey, you're supposed to interpret this figuratively, 
The question then that comes is, figuratively for what? Because there's got to be something underneath it that the author is actually getting at. But so many times people want to use figurative as a, an escape hatch out of complicated things, right? Or out of things that maybe don't fit a cultural narrative or whatever. And so they'll say, well, that's, that, well, that's clearly figurative. Well, in the Bible, figurative has a meaning underneath it. And the point of using figurative language is what? What if I told you we actually do this today? We actually do this all the time today. In fact, you probably see it, well, at least in the, back in the day, you probably saw it once a week in political cartoons. Okay, now here, here's a promise. Wait, look at me. Don't look up there. Look at me. Look at me. All right? Hang on. Hang on. Before we go there, all right? Before we go there, here's the deal. We are, we are, we are not doing political stuff, all right? We're not getting political, all right? We're not going to do that. I'm not asking for your political opinion of what is on the screen, all right? I'm not. And I didn't put this up there to communicate a political opinion at all, all right? I need you to understand that. I did it because it's a good illustration of what I'm talking about, all right? So that's it, all right? Don't burn me on this, all right? So here we go. Um, all right, so, so what's up here? Uh, what is up here is there is in the middle a big... A big aspirin tablet, right? And on it, it says Obamacare. Again, I'm not asking for your political opinion, okay? That's not what this is for. All right, all right, okay. On the back side over here is a donkey, all right? On the front side over here is an elephant. Big Al. Yeah, Big Al is over here on the front end. Uh, and underneath is a guy being crushed by the weight of the big aspirin. And up here, uh, the donkey is saying, roll it out. And here, the elephant is saying, roll it back. All right? I tried to pick one that was really old so that maybe it wouldn't create a big controversy. All right. Uh, maybe the, the most ridiculous thing that I've ever done. Uh, so here we go. I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, so what if I told you, what if I, help, uh, I told you that um, we're talking politics, all right? And I'm going to describe to you a scenario. And I verbally told you exactly what's up here in the political cartoon. And I told you up front, this is, this is in the realm of political cartoons. And I just described an elephant is pushing a pill that says Obamacare on it. And he's saying, put it back or roll, roll it back. And a donkey is pushing and saying, roll it out. And under the weight of this pill is a person being crushed by it. How many of you would be able to interpret that? Raise your hand. Be able to interpret it? If I told you it was in a political cartoon, you'd be able What would you say the elephant was? Hey, whoa, I said don't get political. Uh, Republican, right? You immediately, without even a second thought... No elephant Republican. What about the donkey? Democrat. What about the pill? What does that represent? Obamacare, and, and there's probably a large, larger conversation about medical care in general, right? Represented by a big, 
almost like stone-like kind of tablet shaped like a pill. What's that? Okay. Yeah, and then underneath, there is a, a person who represents what? Us. Us, the, the regular everyday person crushed by the cost, right? And so that, that is the point that is being communicated by the cartoon. You intuitively understand this. Now, tell me, not political opinions, tell me, what's the benefit of political cartoons like that? Makes it more palatable. You can, you, you can see it, and you can kind of like think about it. It causes you to mull it over a little bit. Okay. So it's a different, form, a different medium that when it comes to you, it, it's sort of received and meant to make you kind of digest it a little bit differently. Okay, so then that's the other question. But don't ask that question yet. I'm going to ask that question. I'm asking the questions here. Uh, so, 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 so then... <laughs> I'm going to have to ask you to take her out in just a minute. Uh, so... <laughs> I know, I'm sure it has. So, so what else? Is there another reason why you might, why you might put a political car- if you're if you're running a website or, or maybe a newspaper, why would you put a political cartoon in there? What's that? Okay, there's a there's an opinion conveyed. There is a point being made by it. Yeah. Right. It, it sort of it yeah it kind of gets the names out of the way a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. That, for the most part, would take an article to communicate the same idea. Here's the, here is the deal with apocalyptic literature, or even as we break into these poems given by like Isaiah or the rest of the prophets, when they bring in these images really quickly, they communicate things that would otherwise take potentially a lot longer to communicate. They also, so, so there's, there's maybe some space saving. It also has a punchiness to it that causes you to receive it differently. Why? Because you have to think about it for a second. Wait a minute. Huh. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. So the apocalyptic language or poetic language is doing something to you that is different than what prose does. If I were to give you prose, an article, I'd have to put my main point up front, and then my second point, and then third, and, and, and build my argument, and, and make sure it's constructed, give all my resources and things like that. But if I tell you, I'm going to give you a political cartoon, and I can just throw it out there real quick. It makes the point that I want to make without having to really go through all the arguments. Right? So, this symbolic language or this kind of figurative language is meant to have something underneath it because the question then becomes, is that true? I'm not asking whether you agree with it or not. That's a different discussion. What I'm saying is, it, at least in the author's opinion, whoever drew it, the cartoonist, do they understand a, a truth and are they trying to communicate a truth or are they just trying to give you a cartoon? 
Okay, so the Bible's doing a very similar thing when it breaks into this. I'm not trying to say it's cartoonish, or I'm not trying to say any of those kinds of things. What I am saying is, just because there's a figurative image that's being used, doesn't mean that underneath it there's not a truth that's being communicated. And there is. But you've got to do the work to parse the individual parts of it to help understand what truth is actually being communicated by it. Okay, now as we get into some passages, this is going to be a little bit more challenging. All right. So imagery is presented in many places throughout Isaiah, but the most challenging places to navigate are those where the prophet speaks apocalyptically. And I want to look at a few. Now, I've got the passages listed there. You're more than welcome to look at the back of your packet where some of these verses are um, discussed, and, and then we can uh, unpack them. I can probably tell you this is going to take two weeks, but that's okay. Um, uh, I kind of thought it might. Um, so look at Isaiah 13, 10 to 16 first. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant, and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle, or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people, and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will fall by the sword." Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. That sounds horrifying. Uh, the question is, what is it an image for? And when it comes to passages like these, and we're going we're gonna to talk about, you see all the ones listed there, thir Isaiah 13, uh, Isaiah 34, 3 to 4, Isaiah 25, 1 to 2. 1 to 12, and 65, 17 to 25. We're going to talk about all of those. The 25 and the 65 we'll probably get to next week, uh, two weeks from now. But um, these first two, Isaiah 13, 10 to 16, and then 34, 3 to 4. Look at, look at verse thir chapter 34, verses 3 to 4. Um, he says, Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. All right, let's just, you take those passages, your gut reaction as you read them, it sounds very apocalyptic, doesn't it? Stars falling from heaven. Clouds rolling up like a scroll. In fact, that verse in Isaiah is part of what inspires it as well. You know, and Lord haste the day when my faith shall be sighted, and clouds be rolled back as a scroll. comes straight from Isaiah. And what is he talking about in the hymn? He's talking about the day when the Lord returns and the clouds be rolled up like a scroll. So when you read Isaiah 34 verse 4 and you see that 
lying there, your mind immediately goes to when? Timeline-wise, when does it go to? When is it? When the Lord returns. End of all things is when your mind just immediately goes to. Anytime you hear that kind of stuff, right? So the, the, when we talk about apocalyptic literature, well, then how do we interpret it? If we're just left with the image like that, how do we actually understand what's being said? And that's where context has to govern our interpretation, right? So we have to be ruled by context, and we have to look at the passage as a whole to determine what the author is actually talking about. If you're blind to context and you only want to look at that verse, well, then it's going to be really challenging to interpret anything in apocalyptic literature, anything in symbolic language, because you don't have the referent. You don't know what he's talking about. It would be the same as taking that political cartoon and dropping it into the middle of Turkey 2,000 years from now and saying, here, interpret this for me. Well, if the guy in Turkey doesn't have a, the American political framework in his mind from the 2000s and all the political ongoings that were happening during the 2000s, the era we're in now, how could he possibly interpret it? So for us, it's important that we understand the context of the passage, what is being talked about, and we maintain that throughout the passage. So that's got to govern our interpretation of how this is, is going to be interpreted. So when we get to a passage like Isaiah 13, 10 to 16, what is being talked about here since our minds want to go to the end of time? Well, if you look in the context, and this is where your Bible might be handy if you want to open to Isaiah 13, that's fine, but you obviously have the verse there. If you go back to verse 1 of this whole passage, where the, the context of that verse, that, that passage that I read falls in, he says this in chapter 13, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. And then he goes into, you can even see if you have the ESV in front of you, you can, or, or any probably English translation, you can see that it's you know, marked for poetry. Like it, the biblical interpreter, as they, were, as they were translating the passage, understood what he was interpreting as poetry. And so he inset the margins and things like that to help communicate that idea that the whole thing is kind of connected together. And as you go down, he says, on a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land for from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pains and agony will seize. Okay, so who is he talking to here? Who is he talking about? Babylon. He's told you that up front. This is about Babylon. Everything that follows is about Babylon. Has he, so far, deviated from Babylon? 
He has not told you anywhere in here that he is deviating from Babylon, from discussing Babylon. Then he gets to, behold the day, in verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land of desolation, to destroy it from its, its, its centers from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations, what I just read. Has he deviated from Babylon so far? He hasn't. So that means that for Isaiah, what he's intending to communicate about Babylon, he has not changed from. He's telling you about Babylon. Now, the next question is, how do the stars in heaven lose their light in the sun? You would think that would be a global event we would know about, right? The stars in the heavens losing their light and the moon losing their light and the sun losing its light. So what is he doing here? Well, Isaiah is floating in and out of imagery. He's giving you images for how bad the destruction against Babylon is going to be. All right, so what happens if we interpret that literally? Well, then we go back into history and we try to find a day when all the stars lost their light and all the, sun, the moon, moon lost its light and the sun lost its light. And we spend forever trying to find when that happened. And you'll hear some people try to do that. That isn't what he's saying at all. He's floating in and out of images, and those images are meant to convey a very powerful point. Let me ask you, what would happen if you walked outside during the daytime and the sun was not shining? Not it was a cloudy day. The sun's still shining on a cloudy day. We can agree on that. What would you do if God had pronounced judgment? And how would that feel? Cold. What if the moon didn't provide its light either? What if the stars in the heavens stopped shining? What would that mean to you? This is not good. God is telling them, I'm about to put your lights out. Like Mike Tyson gives a mean right hook right to the guy's jaw and puts his lights out. I'm about to knock your lights out. How's that going to feel to you? Everything he's describing here. Now, now what, what is he, what is he, what's the ultimate outcome for Babylon? Oh, they're going to die. For sure. Babylon's going to be overthrown. They're never going to wake up again. They're going to be knocked out cold. Which, for them... It's not going to shine anymore. It doesn't shine on dead people. Sun doesn't shine on dead people. Stars, they lose their light as well. All right. Now, if it's right, then, to say that what he's talking about is the judgment on Babylon, then what we understand is that the lights in heaven uh, being turned off for Babylon represent the severity of his judgment. That it is going to result in the absolute destruction of your kingdom and your personal death. Period. How do we understand that? Well, by going back to the beginning and saying, who is he talking about? Is this meant to be understood by you, the Christian, right now as the apocalypse? No, not primarily. First, it's meant to be understood as a judgment against Babylon. All right. Now, if we go to Isaiah 34, 
3 and 4, we get this similar depiction. Let me get there. We get this similar depiction in verse 4. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves fall from the fig tree. So then, likewise, what we're understanding is that we've got to go to the context. What does the context say he is talking about? Well, if you go back up to verse 1 in 34, which is also in your verse packet there, he says, Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations, and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Now, we have to understand that this comes on the back end of God going through a long list of nations and telling them what's wrong with every single one of them and how he's going to bring judgment on all of them. Isaiah's been doing that really since the beginning of the book. Okay, So we understand in the broader context, God has just been laying waste to all the nations. So it's within reason then that at the beginning he calls all the nations' attention just to summarize. All right, Just so you remember, this is what's going to happen. And then he goes into the slain will be cast out and all the host of heaven will rot away and that, and that sort of thing. And he says then in verse 5, look at verse 5. He says, For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon whom? Edom. All the nations, you need to listen. You need to all draw near and you need to watch. I'm about to judge Edom and you're all going to see it and it's going to be a foreshadowing of what's going to happen for you. Your heavens are going to rot away. Again, we get the same image coming back to us over again of the constellations and the atmosphere and everything that you count on as being stable. You count on at 6 a.m. in the morning, well, whatever time it rises now, uh, you, when you get up in the morning at some point, the sun's going to come up. You depend on that. It rises in the east and it sets in the west. You all know that because it does that every single day. We depend on the earth to rotate on its axis so that the sun appears to us to rise and fall, right? You depend on those stars, and particularly back then, they depend on the stars for navigation. So it's tremendously important that the stars give off their light at night. We need something by which to see. The moon is there in the sky to give us our bearings and to set our timing of our calendar, right? So, for them, all of this is going to be torn asunder, and he pronounces judgment specifically on Edom. So the context helps us to discover that he's turning his attention to Edom. He's calling all the nation's attention and saying they're all going to be judged, but I'm turning specific attention to Edom, and this is what's going to happen to them. And so then, what that helps us do is we're starting to see a pattern emerge, aren't we? This whole heavens not giving their light, the stars not giving their light, the sun, the moon, stars, all those things not giving their light. We start to see a pattern emerge for when the constellations are brought up, a nation is being called to the carpet and being judged. Yes? A nation is being called. Okay? Well, then that helps us. Because the New Testament just uses those same images as if you're supposed to know your Old Testament. Can you believe that? The nerve of Jesus to quote the Old Testament without telling us 
and without explaining what he's meaning. He just randomly will quote the Old Testament and expect you to know it. So when does he do that? Well, if you look at Matthew 24, verse 29, do you remember Matthew 24? We went through Matthew 24 a while back. I heard from some of you who were big fans. Um, he says in 20, verse 29, this is Jesus talking to the disciples. He says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken. What did he just quote? just quoted Isaiah. Did he tell you? Nope. Expected you to know it. Who's he talking about? That's the question. Who's he talking about? Well, if you remember, which you might, when I preached through Matthew 24, I said the first 35 verses of Matthew 24, he's talking about judgment that's coming on the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is being judged. One, they're being judged for crucifying the Messiah. They say later in chapter 26, His blood be on us and on our children. They want the condemnation and they're going to get it. How are they going to get it? Well, I said specifically, it's not just a judgment on the nation of Israel, but that He's going to signify the judgment on the nation of Israel by destroying their temple. You pick up on this language, by the way, not for Matthew. You actually get it from Luke who's talking to a bunch of Gentiles who doesn't expect you to know your Old Testament. And there he explains Jesus' comments that the nation of Israel is going to be, specifically the city of Jerusalem, is going to be surrounded by Gentile armies. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, if you're a student of the Old Testament and you go back into your Old Testament and you read it and you understand it in its context, and you're interpreting the images that, is being, that are being used by Isaiah then by the time you get to the New Testament and Jesus says, when he's talking about the nation of Israel and specifically the temple, the sun will not give its light, the moon will be turned to blood, your stars are going to fall from heaven. You understand, uh-oh. That is the judgment that he pronounced on Babylon. There's tremendous irony there. Do you understand it? You feel it when Jesus says it now to the nation of Israel? Who is the nation of Israel? Well, these are God's people. We represent the Lord. We are His chosen ones. We're His sons. We're sons of Abraham. No. You're Babylon. You feel the weight of that? You see how punchy that is? Jesus just dropped a political cartoon right in the middle of their lap. And they understand it. In fact, later in 26, uh, Caiaphas is going to ask Jesus, are you the Son of Man? Tell us if you're the Son of God. And he says, you have said so. From now on, you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, power and great glory. From now on, Caiaphas, you're going to see it. From now on, what is Caiaphas going to see? Jesus crucified is what, Pilate, uh, what, what he's going to see, what Caiaphas is going to see. After Jesus is resurrected, he says, All power and all authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. See, when he told Caiaphas that, Caiaphas tears his robes. 
and says he blasphemed. And you're in the New Testament going, hello, I'm from Turkey 2,000 years from now. I don't understand your political imagery. Could you break it down for me? Jesus just quoted to Caiaphas from Daniel chapter 7. And he explained to him that he is going to be crowned by the Ancient of Days and all the power and authority is going to be taken from you, Caiaphas, and it's going to be given to me. He just told him that. He told him that in one verse that's a sentence long. And Caiaphas immediately understood it as if he's telling you, elephant, donkey, pill, Obamacare, crushed under the weight, as if he told you that. Caiaphas immediately understands it and interprets it as blasphemy. You understand that? Jesus has just equated himself to the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. What more evidence do we need that this man is a blasphemer? Political, I mean, sorry, apocalyptic imagery. But it sets a pattern for us and helps us understand it. All those passages there, then, form this that I've listed there, have similar references to these constellations not giving their light in judgment of a specific nation. So, we get to Revelation, in Revelation 6.12, in Revelation 8.12, and he says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood. 8.12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that their, the third of their light may, might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Okay. So when we hear the language of the Old Testament coming back to us time and time again, Jesus pronouncing the same judgment on the nation of Israel, and then we get into Revelation, where now he's actually talking about the whole world. Now we're looking at in Revelation, now we really are getting close to the apocalypse. We're talking about the time when it's all over. When Christ's kingdom is established forever, and there will be no qualifications to it. When all evil will be eradicated and kicked off the planet. Thrown into the lake of fire. Now we're getting closer to that day, and he says, the moon won't give its light. Well, what is he doing? Should we, should we go outside and should we be looking in the sky for a blood moon? As people do. Should we count our calendar days? How long until the next blood moon? <gasps> it was not that long ago. I can't remember. It was three or four years ago, maybe. There was a blood moon on the same weekend as Passover, I think, or something along the Jewish calendar, and it was also happened to be a particular something. I don't remember. There was some other significance to it. And, there, oh, I know, I remember what it was. It was four blood moons, four blood moons, all happening on, around important holidays on the Jewish calendar. And there was a lot of people making a lot of big hay about it. Oh, my goodness, the blood moon, blood moon, blood moon, blood moon's going to be turned to blood and all this. Is that what we're supposed to be looking for? Is that what John is telling us? No! Here's the reality. I'm going to spoil this for you. I hope I don't, and I hope it doesn't cause too much of a fight. Jesus told us that day and that hour that he returns, you're not going to know it. In fact, I don't know it. Angels in heaven don't know it. Only the Father knows it. It's best that way. So what are the odds that in the rest of the New Testament they're going to tell you how you will know it? Zero. There's nothing in Revelation 
that's going to point to signs and wonders that will help you understand and know when Jesus is going to return. Clear? He tells us that plainly. He doesn't contradict his word. So when we get to Revelation, it's not that John is just using figurative language and therefore it's meaningless. No. The figure is supposed to point to something. It's supposed to tell you something really important. Don't look at the moon for a sign of when Christ is coming. The moon being turned to blood is an image that represents your lights being put out. Judgment is falling on you and you're all going to die. Is that terrifying enough? Who are the ones that are the most comforted by it? Well, in the passage in Revelation 6, if you go up just a few verses, I didn't include it, and I'm sorry I should have, but I didn't think about it until just now. If you go up just a few verses in chapter 6, there's a whole bunch of people that are crying out for the judgment of the Lord. Do you know who they are? They're the saints who, are, who have held their testimony through to the end. And what has happened to them? They were killed for it. And they're crying out to the Lord, how long before you avenge our blood on the earth? Well, just another seal later. The moon has turned to blood. And everybody, everybody, whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, are running and crying, let the rocks fall on us. For the day of the wrath of the Lamb of God has come, and who can stand? Well, what's interesting about Revelation chapter 6, and I wish we were there, we're just doing a study of Revelation. What's interesting about Revelation chapter 6, the last words of chapter 6 are, who can stand? Chapter 7 God calls out his army, his people, who are called by his name. And in verse 9 of chapter 7, do you know where they are, what they're doing? Standing before the throne. Well, the wicked have just run from the fury of the Lamb of God, and they've asked, who on earth could stand under the weight of the wrath of God? And just nine verses later, here are a host of people called under the banner of Christ standing before His throne. How on earth is it possible that they could stand before His throne? Because they're not under the weight of His wrath. That's why. But none of that happens. You don't understand what He's saying there unless you unpack the image and all of its roots going back to the Old Testament. Understood? See that? What all that's designed to say, and, and we're going to continue this next time, because Tom will just absolutely come in here and turn my moon to blood if I don't let you out. Oh. <laughs> and roll, roll up the building roof like a scroll. You can see. <laughs> uh, all that's designed to say your Bible needs to be read. Your Bible needs to be studied. You need to open your eyes and pay attention to what's going on. Study it in concert with other believers. Gather around the Word together. Talk about what it means. 
quick plug, just a brief little plug, okay? Starting at the beginning of next year, so this will be in January, we're going to take one day a month, meet in here for lunch, lunch will be provided, I mean, you're going to have to pay us back, but we'll have lunch there for you, so it'll be over lunch break, 12 to 12.45. All we're going to do is work on unpacking passages of Scripture. How do you study it? How do you open your eyes to see that in there? We're going to take a book, and we're just going to go through it a little chunk at a time, all right? And we're going to go through what questions do we ask? What are good questions? What are bad questions? What do we do? How do we study this? So pay attention. We're, we're going to do that, and I think it will, it will really help. And so I hope to see you there when we do that. Let's pray, and then in two weeks we'll come back to this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to be here tonight and to just look at your word and, and to study it. And, and I, I pray that what is communicated is uh, helpful, is encouraging, is, is, is also maybe a little bit overwhelming. That we might be really, um, our, just our minds be overwhelmed a little bit by, by the task that lies before us. But then I pray also that we might be comforted by your spirit. Who, who gives us help to read, to interpret, to understand, to study, to know. And that I, I, I hope that in all of that, we might be tremendously encouraged, knowing that this word that you have put in front of us is not only inherent, not only infallible, it can be tested, it can be read, and it will not be found wanting. I pray that that brings us a lot of hope and a lot of courage as we read it and understand that it can train us, equip us, that we may be ready for every good work that you have for us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.